Welcome to The Haber Show. This week, we have a very special guest. You've seen him on ESPN or read him at Sports Illustrated or ESPN the magazine. His name is Pablo Torre. He's a regular panelist on Around the Horn and Highly Questionable, which is now called Highly Quarantined. He's as close to a documentary nerd as it gets, and I say nerd with the utmost affection. So we're going to talk about The Last Dance and also get his take on the 76ers as the guy who wrote a Sam Hinkie profile during the early stages of Trust the Process. And he tells me about the story of how he got exactly one line on the record from Hinkie during an hour-long meeting. We'll talk about being a new father, how Shane Battier is the deliverer of baby newborn sleeping tips, and how the 76ers are about to be a sports freakonomics chapter. So without further ado, Pablo Torre. Pablo, it is... Giannis Antetokounmpo apparently has been hacked. I saw that. I circulated the first tweet that he posted because it was relevant to my people. And then I was like, oh, yeah, this is, this, is, this is a kid getting hacked by kids who are even younger than him. Is that, I don't know, how do you tell whether it's young kids or whether it's a boomer? Like, well, how do we know this? Well, it could be a boomer masquerading as some kids, but just the speech patterns, the speech patterns, the links, the, uh, the general ambiance. Um, I would go and read some of them, but it's almost entirely all racism. So I'm going to probably not do that. But oh, 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 they've cleaned it up, Tom. They have Giannis's account has deleted those tweets. So for a fleeting shooting star of a moment, we had we had <laughs> we had uh, a cyber attack scandal to discuss, but now all the evidence has been erased. This is not fair because Giannis just had a kid, just like you did, Pablo. And it's not fair to attack someone who hasn't slept in three months. That's a great point. You know, that's a great point. I am I am more vulnerable than I've ever been on every possible <laughs> level. So I, I forgive Giannis for for all of the lax security protocols that he had been living with. Yes, yes. Two-step notification, verifications, please. Uh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. He's, he's only like the most famous uh, European basketball player in the world um, ever. So, we'll, you know what? We'll, we'll let it slide because he's, he's a new father. And uh, as, as someone who has an eight-month-old um, at home and you yeah. are a newly, uh, newly minted father, how's fatherhood going for you? It's... Everything that people like you have been telling me, I will confess that all of the emotion that I would have deemed a cliche once upon a time, uh, I would have dismissed it with a wave of my hand. That's all very real. You, you dads were not lying about the transformative hormonal emotional power that has overtaken me. Uh, my circuitry has been activated. Uh, I am, I am, I, I feel, I feel so dad-like that I don't remember what it was like to be not a dad, uh, is how it's been going. All, all of which is to say that I am overwhelmed and, uh, and it's the best thing at the same time. I'm shocked and impressed, not shocked, but I am impressed that you, you went back for another. Congratulations to you, Tom. We haven't really spoken since, since yes. baby number two, but dude. How is that? Uh, you don't really pay much attention to number two. You, you just don't. <laughs> you don't. 
you know, all the things, but keep in mind that all of the technology that you're using or the beds that you, the bassinet or the thing that vibrates the kid um, to sleep, all of that, just understand that in six months, they're going to do a recall. (laughs) Just know that you're going to go through a huge guilt pattern as a, as a parent, when you find out that all the things that you used with your beautiful daughter is going to later become, uh, known as, as just a, a death trap. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, Wait, yeah, yeah. I, we were told that this was totally safe. And now we've, we come to learn that that like we use this rock and play for Madeline for like the longest time. And we were like, Oh, should we uh, keep her in the bassinet or do this little like rocking thing that it says technically not to have overnight, but it's the only thing that she would sleep in overnight. And then we come to learn that that thing wasn't even good for naps. We had that <laughs> in there for the entire night and that was not safe. <laughs> just like a, a 20 minute cat nap. So um, all those things, you'll, you'll, it's going to be recalled at some point. Yeah, you know, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. I've been noticing like on the stuff that we have, and we have all sorts of technology of varying sophistication that the labels are very big in terms of like legal disclaimers. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, this seems to be an industry where things have happened in the past. And so they want to be very clear about what they are responsible for and not responsible for. So we have like one of these bouncers. I don't even know the name of it. I'm sure Liz, my wife does, but uh, we're, we're bouncing. Like, I hope that's okay. Yes, um, we have, sure. we have, we, we have a, uh, are you familiar with the snoo, Tom? Oh, of course. Yes. Uh, Dan Moike, the, uh, uh, the, LA yes. Times writer. He is a huge proponent. Like he would jump in my DMs. Like as soon as I got, uh, I had my second kid, I got all these congratulations from people. Of course, the, the celebratory like, Hey, I'm, I'm a dad. And then all I got from Dan was just snoo, um, just propaganda, propaganda. Yes. Yes. And, and, there- and we almost did it. It became this thing where we were about to take the plunge and then our second kid just decided to sleep through the night. So we just didn't seem to jump all over. Yeah, no, that's, that's first off, congratulations on the whole sleeping through the night thing. <laughs> I mean, as much as parents talk about that, it is, it is everything. It is so everything. Uh, so, <laughs> so you're, you're, it's called a snoo, right? Yeah, snoo, S-N-W-W, S-N-W-W, this is my brain not working, S N. Oh, oh. Yes. it is made by a dude or was invented by a dude named Harvey Karp. He is a figure that is worth Google imaging if you're listening, just because he is absolutely what you'd imagine a, a yes. baby inventor to look like. Um, but he's, some, he's something of a, like a, an authority in this world. Anyhow, the point is, it's a kind of like techie, advanced bassinet that shakes your child in ways that are like, I guess, <laughs> finely calibrated. But one of the things that's been happening is that Violet is in the snow and she's taken to it. It hasn't been like the uh, saving all-powerful device that the Dan Wojcikis of the world have advertised, yes. but it certainly helps. Um, but Violet you know, has like a bald spot on the back of her head where I believe the snoo has been like rocking her back and forth and like the baby hair can get worn away. So the point is, if there's like a notice months from now, that's like, Hey, if you've been using this thing like this and you've been getting like, if you've, and you've been balding your babies. Yeah. It turns out that's bad. 
No, the I bald English is normal. It's totally normal, Pablo. Okay, Pablo. thank God. And don't thank feel God. guilty because it's a girl. Like she doesn't want that. She she needs to. That that's a very natural thing. I think both of my daughters uh, balded, and that has nothing to do. People out there are like, ah, yeah, you're bald too, Dad. Um, <laughs> that yes might be genetic, but I think it's also just par for the course. I mean, think about how much they lay on their head like that. Right. Right. And so thank you for that reassurance and also for saving me from a potential lawsuit from Harvey Karp, who was listening and was like, I'm about to sue the out of this. Is he is he the same guy who has like the the sleeping techniques that? Yes. uh, Yes. So Shane Battier, of all people, when he found out that I had a kid, he like gave me these two CDs, like DVDs, like not (laughs) even... Wait, the happiest toddler? Shane Battier yes. gave you the happiest toddler? Oh, that's incredible. Yes. Shane Battier was like, this is going to be a lifesaver. Uh, this is the only advice I will give to you is watch this DVD. And he gave me these two discs, which I, I brought home. And then I realized I can't watch these. I don't have like a DVD player anymore. <laughs> like I was like, Shane, do you have like a link or a YouTube or a, a Vimeo link or something that I can watch? And he's like, no, a torrent? I have. Can I... Can I torrent Harvey Karp's instructional videos? (laughs) Um, I'm on the Wikipedia page right now, Tom, and it says, Critics say Karp is riding to fame on the strength of his patient's VIP parents, who include Michelle Pfeiffer, Pierce Brosnan, and Madonna. And I feel like we should now edit in Shane Battier. Yes. Yes. The No Stats All-Star by Michael Lewis. Absolutely. We'll footnote that in the criticism subsection of the Harvey Karp page. But, but it's real insofar as I have like watched some of his videos and I've like imitated. I don't do any of my studying comprehensively. I kind of like, I don't know if this is even good to admit, but I kind of like look at stuff and I'm like, let me try this without fully watching the video. And it seems to be working, honestly. That's, that's I, all I mean, It's all trial. Yeah. <laughs> find what works for you and you just roll with it. It really is. It really is. And I'd imagine staying up late to watch TV now. Uh, what is that? Where, where are you in that stage of like, are you up all night because you're just up all night with the kid or do you like crash at like 830? Yeah. So Liz is such. So Liz is the head coach of this team. I would say that I am maybe a Ron Adams type, maybe like an assistant who is, who is, who is out earning uh, his station. Like I like to think that, but in reality, I know I'm, I'm more of the anonymous third guy on the bench. Um, so Liz is up. Um, well, recently less so because the has been sleeping better, but she is the one who was like on 4am duty. She spares me from yes. that partly because I'm useless at 4am. Um, what am I going to do? I'm just going to sit there. Uh, so that I get spared from, but basically our schedule is at 8 PM Violet takes her bath and then we put her down and that takes some amount of time. But then I feel my old self kind of flicker to life. Yep. So by around 9 PM, I can watch TV. I get to indulge in my various vices. I am eating cold cuts and tearing them apart with my hands. Mm. It's basically between nine and Are you done with bread like, with cold cuts? Are you just, have you just skipped the bread part? I, I just roll them up and throw some mustard or horseradish in there and I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, horseradish has been a revelation for me during <sighs> this quarantine. Yes. I don't Isn't know, it delicious? And I don't know why I wasn't in on this before. <laughs> 
like if you put it on oysters, maybe you might have been introduced to the the glory of horseradish, sure. or if you or hot dog or whatever it is. But it's it's one of the top five condiments for me. Like I just skip ketchup. I don't do ketchup anymore. I'm out of the ketchup game. Um, I don't replace it mm. with horseradish, but I would say horseradish is definitely a vaulted way of fire. Yeah, horseradish is on my metal stand right now, and I am in a. I'm in a place where like I will look at the nutritional information and I have no idea like how reassuring this should be. But I looked at the back of my horseradish um, squeeze bottle and it was like 0% cholesterol. Really? Is this possible? Is this, am I stumbling upon a thing that I can eat (laughs) guilt-free as I monitor my cholesterol levels? I can just dollop this all over my cold cups without bread. Um, Yeah. So I'm all in on that. And you're right. For me, like we basically do, we're in Manhattan in the middle of all of this. So basically we have a weekly grocery delivery. And so if I am tearing through that bread and I have housed some sweet Hawaiian rolls, yeah, that those are gone by, we get, we get the delivery on Friday. Those are gone by like Tuesday. Mm. And at that point I am telling myself that I'm going carb free, but I just ran out of the Hawaiian sweet rolls. So well, um, I'm asking this because it's a long intro, meandering intro into The Last Dance. And by nine, so it's nine o'clock and then it runs through 11 and, on Sunday nights. Yes. And when you have two kids, it's just, it's, it's just a little harder to stay up till 11 o'clock on a Sunday night because Saturday and Sunday in, in general, you're just exhausted um, because you don't have like teachers. We have Zoom calls with our, te- our preschool teacher and, and like that might wow. knock out a, a couple hours. But Saturday and Sunday, we're just like exhausted by Sunday night. I've been watching The Last Dance live. I've made it this far through episode six. I understand that you have watched all eight episodes well, the first eight episodes uh, as part of the, uh, the early running of the documentary. And so I don't know if you've kept up in terms of each week, but how are you enjoying it so far? Yeah. So I watched one through eight early. And since then, by the way, um, there were some internal screeners that were getting shared around ESPN. They got leaked. So they're all available illegally torrentable as I'm as I have been told. So I have not seen nine and 10. Those screeners have been on like hyper security. Um, But I have been watching every week regardless. And it's because it feels like a monoculture event in a way that's rare. Um, It's one of the few upsides of this time we're living in where everybody is kind of talking, it seems, or feels on the internet about the same thing. So I just enjoy the social process of of everyone gathering around the same thing again which is just a foreign concept for 99 percent of our lives otherwise it's reached the mom zone for sure the mom i was gonna ask so liz does not watch with me because liz is going to bed as soon as violet is down Um, (laughs) and god bless her for being uh at her station uh unflaggingly but for you guys you guys are watching as a couple yeah, I'll watch it Sunday night. And so a lot of times I watch an episode of Westworld with by myself. Yes, and, and, yes, same, and, same. And then I'll watch Westworld with my wife so I can explain what the <laughs> oh, F is no. going on. Um, I feel like I have, to, I have to stop every 30 seconds just to explain the plot. And so I've gotten in a habit of that. Well, I'll watch the Last Dance documentary and then watch it again with her, just like with every other show. Cause she's out by like, she wants to get into bed by nine o'clock and just lights out by nine fifteen. 
Yeah. So, and I can't, I can't blame her. You know, she's up, she's up with the kid all night. So for the last dance, uh, she's been watching. My mom has been watching my sisters-in-law that don't pay attention to sports. They're watching because I think it's a nineties nostalgia bomb. Mm. Yep. Yep. And you get to kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's different for our generation. So I think we were, we're the same age, yeah. probably you and I. And when I go on air and talk about the glory of Michael Jordan, a lot of them are like, what are your memories of Jordan? I'm like, I was eight years old when that happened. Or I was like <laughs> four when that happened. So all of my memories are just like shards of Michael's greatness. Like I get, I, I hear the intro music and I get like really, like I get put back into my den when I was a kid mm-hmm. watching NBA on NBC. So I really enjoy the documentary. It's been super interesting to see the, I know people are saying, oh, like Michael Jordan's such a bad and he's a ruthless guy, but I actually really like the vulnerable moments of Michael Jordan. The most recent episode where he he was in his hotel room, he was inviting the cameras and he was laying down in his like athleisure of of 1998 and smoking a cigar or just chewing on a cigar and talking about the very thing that Adam Silver was talking about with Bill Simmons at the Sloan Conference two uh, two Mm. years ago, which is, I'm miserable. This life in front of the spotlight is not fun. I do not wish this life upon anybody. And I was like, this is 20 years ago or 30 years ago. And I feel like a lot of NBA players can relate to this Michael Jordan in a weird way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think the introspective Jordan is is the revelation here. And it's not like he is, you know, atoning for his personality traits. In fact, I think he's mostly defending them and doubling down on them in many cases. But his admission that this life that he led has a real misery to it. It's such an important lesson for anybody who aspires or who thinks about happiness as a byproduct of celebrity or fame or fortune. And I know that's a real unpopular message because, look, we live in late capitalism and there are so many advantages and privileges that come with fame and fortune and celebrity. All the things that I am decrying here and that Michael Jordan was debunking in some ways, but it's just not, it's just not happiness. It's a different thing. And if we can, if we can sort of wrap our national consciousness around that, this notion that the people that we emulate and envy are themselves losing the game of joy and happiness, I feel like that's probably a net positive. Which is kind of what Ethan Strauss's book is about, right? It's about this uh, seeking happiness through total annihilation and not getting that, not getting that, that cheese at the end of the maze that you thought was there. And I think Michael, you know, for all the people who say um, Michael was this one-dimensional ruthless killer like yes he very much was that guy a a lot of times in this documentary but i think uh we we talked about it in the group chat is like it is amazing to see those vulnerable moments of michael jordan and when he screws up when he doesn't hit the shot when he misses the free throw it's like wait what am i watching here this is not right it's like we're not i i every time we we go through history and talk about michael jordan it's usually begins with six and oh Yes. And the fact that he was spotless in the finals. And 
Uh, and that's usually in context of LeBron James trying to tear down LeBron James. And I do remember that Pablo Torre, you once described your father, who is a uro- urologist, <laughs> as the LeBron James of urology. And I'm wondering... Of, 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 of Filipino oh, sorry. urology. <laughs> it's an important <laughs> distinction here. It is. That's it is. punchline. Yes. Yeah, so he is the LeBron James of Filipino urology. Now you use LeBron James. You didn't use Michael Jordan, Pablo. Mm. What does this mm. mean? Yeah, yeah. This is why Michael Jordan made this documentary, Tom. <laughs> this is why. Uh, and I think, by the way, there is some truth to that, that Michael Jordan was the sole proprietor of Mount Olympus for a really long time. And then LeBron James came along and embarked on various construction projects, built a mansion right near his, built schools, built movie studios, and people began to think of Mount Olympus as a shared property. And I do think that legacy matters to these guys. And it matters because if you're not getting happiness out of this, what do you have? And I think ego obviously enters the equation and and competitiveness as michael jordan explains away his gambling problems enters this and you want to be the sole proprietor you want to have the biggest house on the highest point of mount olympus and for me i should be honest here too like what's so weird about me using lebron james as that reference the greatest a1 um i grew up as you did um, in this time. And I was a Michael Jordan stan. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was a Knicks fan, theoretically. Like, but I was, a, I was one of those like, messed up bigamists who somehow fell in love with Michael Jordan because in my heart of hearts, I was a front-running child who was enamored of this dude who was godlike. And I remember being in front of the TV. I remember responding to John Tesh's musical (laughs) oeuvre in the way that you did. And I remember balling up socks and like shooting them into the air when Jordan was at the free throw line because I was like somehow cosmically connected to him. I was a fan. I was collecting his baseball cards, basketball cards. I was doing all this stuff. And baseball and, cards. Come on. I'm yeah, sure your <laughs> stadium club Less. had Michael. <laughs> I remember having a binder full of Michael. I remember having a binder full of trading cards, but I remember going downstairs um, in the park of my apartment building and uh, lending my binder to some kids and who were checking them out that I didn't really know. I was like showing off my cards. And then I got it back and I went upstairs and hours later I realized that they had stolen all of the Michael Jordan cards from it. Oh. And, I, I, and I just remember, I remember being so crushed. And it reminds me that like, yeah, I was, I was drinking all of the Kool-Aid. I was, now was I like Skip Bayless level, you know, posing with my shoes in front of uh, the mirror and taking a photo every day? Well. Insofar as an eight-year-old in the 90s could, I kind of, I kind of was. I was a super yeah. fan. And, 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 and he, he for, for me, like I was a huge Tar Heels fan, way more than any NBA team at that point when I was a kid. Mm. My grandma loved Michael Jordan. She would watch in North Carolina. She would watch in her living room, turn up the volume really, really high and get on her Nordic track and just... <laughs> 
<laughs> just exercise while watching uh, Michael Jordan and Bulls games because she was so obsessed with the Tar Heels. And so when I was a kid, um, I was a, first and foremost a Michael Jordan fan and then like a Knicks fan and a Celtics fan because I, I grew up outside in New York City, but my dad's from Boston. And so I was one of these like polygamists for, for yes. sports. And Michael Jordan, I think, was the first transition. He was like the maiden voyage for sports fans, for kids, beyond like the very provincial, like I'm a Boston fan or I'm a Chicago fan or I am a, a Lakers fan. Michael Jordan kind of transcended all that. It was just like he, he is undeniably uh, bigger than any team. Yeah, and so one of the things that I've really enjoyed on top of the nostalgia is actually just watching him, watching his highlights. And I thought about this with the OJ doc. Like, it was not at all on the top 100 most important takeaways from the OJ Simpson documentary. But, man, OJ was good at football. <laughs> and so just, <laughs> yes. just, just watching video of this dude be transcendent at the actual craft of the game. Like you, these were, you know, more psychological imprints than they were vivid memories. And so just watching him has been an actual pleasure. And the director, Jason Hare, who, who's a friend of mine, like what I didn't anticipate was enjoying his creation of what turned out to be like mixtapes, music videos yes. of, of just Jordan with music from the time, which is sort of firing all of these synapses in my brain. Oh my God. It. Like when Big Pun came on and I was just like, oh, oh my. And then it's all about the Benjamins came on. I was like, so good. Just so nailed. Good. So I, so you're friends with him. Yes. The yes. director. I'm wondering, cause you are in like the doc, uh, small elite circle. Like I'm a groupie. Are, I'm a documentary groupie. I'm a yes. 30 for 30 groupie. Uh, for those who don't know, Maybe maybe I'm wrong about this, but your story for the Sports Illustrated about athletes going broke was the basis for Broke 30 for 30? Yeah, yeah. Billy Corbin directed it, and it was based off of the story I did for SI that you mentioned, yeah. I'd imagine there's a bargain here where I think the lone criticism of, of The Last Dance is that it's too Jordan-centric, that like it's if you're going to get Jordan on the record and just – hours and hours on film, you kind of have to let him, I, I, quote unquote, approve what goes into the documentary. Mm -hmm. But if I'm, if I'm the director and I don't get any LeBron, I, I don't get, that's a Freudian slip. If I don't get <laughs> any Michael Jordan or I get a lot of Michael Jordan, like how do you watching the production of this, the, dir the directing of this, assess all that? Because the OJ doc is very different than what we're watching here. Yeah, yeah, no, the OJ doc in this, I mean, it's, it's compared all the time and it's been reviewed as if they are in the same category of thing for reasons that are obvious. ESPN made another 10-part documentary yes. epic. So that's obviously understandable. But in terms of the making of it, it's so vastly different. And the Jordan doc is this insane, first off, just as like a corporate project. It's Netflix and ESPN. It's international and domestic. They wanted to make this thing for like teenagers in France who've never even heard of Michael Jordan, as well as people who are diehard like Jordan heads who, who've read the Jordan rules, right? They wanted to straddle both of these things. So in terms of what it is, Michael Jordan's participation, I think we'd all agree, is the most important thing. Yes. So 
if we're going to make trade-offs here, and yes, these are editorial <laughs> trade-offs, if you're like, this is going to be a searing portrait of Michael Jordan, except he's not going to be involved, I don't think we're, I don't know, 5% as interested in this thing. So what does it become? To me, it becomes a different sort of documentary project. And look, Ken Burns is out here talking about how this is you know, anti-journalism, or he was saying that at some point. And if your standard for this is, I was expecting a searing look into race in America told through the lens of this insane figure in American history. Like, that's OJ. Go do that. If you're looking for a story that is told through the eyes of the participants, namely Michael Jordan, it's this. And this and the analog I would give to this, and this is a compliment because I loved the Defiant Ones. I don't know if you've seen the Defiant Ones, Tom. Yep. But yep. So I, I loved it. And I loved it with the understanding that Dr. Dre has a producer credit mm -hmm. on it. I understood that this is not going to tell us the full story. As long as they're not lying to us in the advertising of this thing and the marketing of it, just give me the information that I need so I can make an educated sort of judgment as a viewer. Because what you get as that trade-off is access. And access is a plague on journalism so often, but for a project like this, it's also essential. So to me, I, I, I thought it was over-delivering on its promise of, is this going to be fun nostalgia? And certainly under-delivering on stuff that I never expected from it in the first place. Yeah, I think I'm surprised by um, how Ahmad Rashad was his boy. Like, <laughs> the, the, the center of the Venn diagram between O.J. Simpson and Michael Jordan, by the yes. way, is Ahmad Rashad. Think about this. Like, Ahmad Rashad like gets a phone call from Michael Jordan, like right before game one of the NBA finals is like, where can we meet? I want to talk on the record and I'm going to do it in sunglasses. <laughs> after a two week media layoff, he is just on a hiatus. He's like ready to talk. And um, he just tweeted out. I don't know if you saw this. He just tweeted, Ahmad Rashad just tweeted out a picture of him, a selfie of him with Jordan's tequila. A hat. <laughs> A hat with the logo, like Shinkoro or whatever it is, and then like a giant bottle that's probably $8 billion worth of tequila. Um, and I just, I was trying to think in, in the uh, media uh, crew, like who would be the Ahmad Rashad who just, LeBron James, no matter what, like we don't have that, I don't think. Just a singular person who gets every, like people think, oh, Brian Winhurst. Like Brian Winhurst doesn't get the scoops from LeBron James. He doesn't. He's out of that game. He's been out of that. When we were working together in Miami, it became very abundantly clear that he did <laughs> not want to nuzzle up on LeBron James and just just be part of that monolith. He, he was like, I'm out of that game. So I don't know who that is in today's NBA, but I'm just struck that Michael Jordan had an Ahmad Rashad, a journalist, a, a reporter who he would just give his stuff to. So there is no one like this. Jim Gray wishes he had Ahmad Rashad's access. Um, Jay Glazer may be the most current version mm -hmm. of it because he's like deeply conflicted journalistically. He like, tr he like trains football players in MMA. And so he gets scoops that way. So there's an intimacy of profession in a different kind of way. But Tom, I just quickly Googled because I just wanted to make sure I got the details right. Who Ahmad Rashad is, he is this, um, he is a unique character 
in American cultural history. I'm staring at a black and white photo and it is the wedding party for Ahmad Rashad, 1985. He marries Felicia Rashad. In the wedding party is OJ Simpson and Bill Cosby. And it's like, and, and obviously like, so it's 85. So Jordan's not there, I'm guessing. But this dude. All roads lead to Ahmad Rashad is what you're saying. All roads lead to Ahmad Rashad. And yeah, I mean, he's a former NFL player on top of everything else. So I probably watched like an eight-part documentary on Ahmad Rashad is what I'm saying. That's, that's the spinoff, right? Like if there's anything, there's, or maybe the spinoff is the, uh, is the dude who shrugs, the, the security guy who shrugs at Michael Jordan after beating him in that coin game. Yes. But yes. I think it's Ahmad Rashad. And I don't think Michael Jordan did any favors by doing that interview. Like admitting that you have a gambling problem, not having a gambling problem, just a competitive problem. And the fact that you're so rich that you're not broke yet from, from gambling. Well, I, don't, I don't think that qualifies as, as a denial. So, so you mentioned broke and this is a convenient segue because oh, yes. the last person to wear sunglasses in an ESPN documentary that I recall was Andre Risen in Broke wearing dark aviators while being surrounded by like imaging of dollar bills flaming through the air. Nobody should wear sunglasses while sitting for a documentary. It only makes you look incredibly culpable. And, and Dennis Rodman did it too, didn't he? Oh, that's right. Oh, of course. I mean, Dennis Rodman is, is yes. And didn't, <laughs> didn't Jason say like all he wanted to talk about was Kim Jong-un like the entire time? <laughs> Like they have like eight hours with Dennis Rodman and they can only use like three and a half seconds of interview. That sounds, um, that all sounds about right. Switching topics here. Cause I want to ask about the, uh, your experience with coronavirus in New York city and the prospect of returning to games and what that's going to do yeah. to your flora and all of us watching <laughs> you on TV. Are we going to lose Pablo Torre and all the plants that you have? If, if, the NBA and all these leagues start up again and then we reopen the economy? Are we not going to get this Pablo Torre anymore? This is the question that is at the forefront of America's brain right now. Yes. Will my plants be on television? And I work, well, I, there's a big part of me that is very concerned for the people who work in these studios the crews, the union guys, the camera operators, the makeup people, because there's a whole ecosystem of human beings who have made this their life's work. And I would hate for them to be left out in the cold because of this. The other part of me is like, I have come to really enjoy doing this stuff remotely. Um, and it's simply because something that you go for in any sort of, I think, broadcasting uh, setting is comfort. Yes. And what is more comfortable than working from home while not wearing pants, surrounded by the plants that you have raised, um, shining? It seems like you're in your living back room. Back at you. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. This is the living room. I have a two bedroom apartment in Manhattan. Like, yes. Liz and Violet can't be. I mean, that, that's a miracle that you haven't had your moment of. It's, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> it's absolutely on the way. As soon as Violet just learned to flip from tummy time to her back, and this is going to, she's going to be motoring around this place onto every <laughs> possible surface um, soon enough. Um, but when this stuff gets back to normal, I think we're going to 
I think, get some of the stuff from the old way back, but I would not be surprised if in the eternal unyielding cost cutting of, of this industry, um, some people are like, actually, doing it from home is more doable than we may have thought. Yeah. Um, so I'm prepared for both eventualities. I'm rooting for uh, different things um, that are in conflict sometimes. But but yeah, I've weirdly come to find a certain joy in in in, in all of this disrupted uh, television that I've been doing. I've never really understood Dan. Dan's tried to explain it to me. Dan Lebetard um, has tried to explain why he has to wear suits on his show <laughs> on a highly questionable. <laughs> oh, I can tell you. I can tell you why. It's simply because. Our executive producer, Eric Rideholm, has said that Dan would look like a, quote, fat skateboarder, end yes. quote, if left With to his flat, own devices. Flat Miami brim, yes. That's right. Flat brim hat, you know, well. Uh, so I think for Dan in particular, <laughs> it was a certain like, well, let's get some formality here. But When I, when I, went, to, when I went to Miami, uh, the first practice I went to on a Sunday afternoon, which is when Dan would like descend from his Mount Olympus in Miami <laughs> and come to uh, Miami basketball practice. And it was like, oh. <gasps> the mayor has arrived yes. and he would, he stood in the corner and it's so weird. I, I don't know how to explain it, but in the way that he was wearing this, uh, this button, short sleeve button down, he was cross armed standing in the corner with a hat on and he looked absolutely jacked. <laughs> oh yes. No, there are angles. It's funny. We've been, we've been joking about this as we do uh, highly quarantined it's called now. Uh, Dan will like put his hands behind his sort of biceps and cross his arms. And he looks just cut. <laughs> yes. He looks like, like he John can... Cena. And I'm like, what? Dan Levitar, this guy and, and Israel Gutierrez is actually jacked. He is like cut from marble. Correct. And so like when I saw him and, and was like, wait, Izzy Gutierrez is actually just like, like a model out there. But Dan Lebitar, that was my first impression was like, I was texting my brothers and my buddies from home being like, Dan Lebitar's like secretly jacked, guys. <laughs> uh, Dan, first off, the, the mayor descending is exactly, that's exactly what happens when he shows up at things in that city. Uh, it's, man, I had so much fun when you used to live there. And I Dan know. was there. And we well, had like our you, youth. I when we had our youth top. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, like you, I had, uh, my wife was pregnant during, yes, during a vir right. virus like that's pandemic right. where we were like, should we stay? Should we go? And at the time, the opposite was true with the Zika virus in Miami, which is it only seemed to affect infants and babies. Yes. And yes. so it was the in tropical in tropical locations. <laughs> yes. And so it was on our block. The, the, the mosquitoes carrying the Zika virus was found to be on our block, like, a, like an eight block radi uh, diameter on, uh, on Miami beach. We, we happened to be in the very epicenter of that zone. So we were like, peace out. And like, I miss those days in Miami. I miss, I miss going onto the set. We actually, um, I want to ask you about this because you have the greatest lead in the history of ESPN, the magazine, which is uh, pulling it up here. The architect of the ballsiest experiment in American sports would greatly appreciate it. If this article disintegrated, <laughs> <laughs> that's your lead for the Sam Hinkie profile piece that never really was a profile piece, except it was a profile piece. Yes. Um, but I remember in Miami, I did a magazine piece about uh, groin shots in the NBA. Mm-hmm. I and remember I went, this well. And I went on air with Amino Hassan and Dan Levitard in the Miami studio at the Clevelander. 
and did, did like a five minute video about getting NBA players. It's so good. Players. So good. And does uh, that so exist that, somewhere still, by the way, does that I video exist somewhere? It still does. He, Dan looked at me and said, my head looks like a testicle. <laughs> <laughs> it was the end. It was the kicker to the piece. It, it was oh. like, all right. Uh, and this is over. And Dan just looks at me in the most Dan Lebertard way, dead pants. You know, your head looks like a testicle. <laughs> such a good out Um, it's such a good out all right let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation hey this is jason golf host of the bulls talk podcast and everybody is talking about michael jordan and the last dance but nobody breaks it down better than former bull kendall gill longtime bulls insider casey johnson and bulls outsider big dave watts i can understand why michael was upset at scotty because this was it for them so why is he doing this and we are trying to win a championship subscribe to bulls talk right now to get recap podcasts automatically downloaded for free after every episode of the last dance now back to the conversation. The other great out is your Sam Hinkie piece. Uh, it ends with the only quote that you ever got from Sam Hinkie, and I just want for a couple minutes you to go back in history and talk about that piece about the 76ers at the base era of Trust the Process. Yeah, so I had been stalking Sam. I had met him in Palo Alto at a conference. He was speaking at the Stanford Business School at a, at a conference we were both at. I stalked him there. I stalked him at games. I had met up with him various times, but he had never, until this climactic scene, agreed to actually sit down with me for the story. But once it became clear that I was just sort of circling him and exhaustively reporting this and sort of knew what I was talking about. He agreed to sit down and we had lunch at a Hillstone in Manhattan. I remember this very vividly. It was before the Sixers were going to play the Nets in Brooklyn. And we had an exhaustive, deep, wildly enlightening conversation in which he opened up, but it was all off the record because he is... Oh, which is crushing. It's crushing. Yeah, and for better and for worse, like, that's him. He wants to protect himself. And, and... So the only clever move that I had was to ask for one sentence to be on the record. And I had, to, I had to pick the sentence. And the sentence that I picked was him talking about the fact that Robert Caro is his favorite author. And it was telling because Robert Caro was the guy who had written and is continuing to write these exhaustive years, decades long volumes about deep political history, Lyndon Johnson, um, and so forth. But as soon as Sam agreed to this one sentence, which I, I haven't asked him about this, but I have to believe that he regrets allowing it. Because as soon as you allow me to quote you, I can then say, we had an interview. Here were the circumstances. The rest of it was off the record. It sort of, it, it got him to be a participant in the story as opposed to being the invisible man who refused to be a part. And so that door got opened and all this light shone through and it ended up being the most important quote after Tony Roden saying, trust the process. Uh, It was the second most important quote in the whole piece. Where are you on the trust the process now? Because I grew up a huge Red Sox fan. And when Theo Epstein came on the scene, it just like blew my mind. It's very, very much the reason why I got into this whole thing is just wanting to be the next Theo Epstein. And when they, when he left 
when Theo Epstein and his regime left and they were replaced by like Dave Dombrowski, I lost a little bit of my fandom because the whole idea of Moneyball was I found, I found out that that was my fandom in many ways was like this idea of using statistics to gain an advantage in sports was like so just enchanting to me as like a a 19 year old. Right. And so the idea of Sam Hinkie where he was just like, I'm going to tank and figure out a way to exploit this loophole of that draft picks and second round picks. If you accumulate enough of them at the top of the draft or at the end of the draft, whatever, you get enough swings at the bat. And sometimes those will turn into superstars like Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. But now it, what the, the article that you wrote was talking about this guy named Robert Covington, who was undrafted, <laughs> a 3 and D guy who was the only good three-point shooter, and he had arms for days. And Sam Aki had this vision of, of getting all these long-limbed uh, shooters, but none of them could shoot. They were going to play high pace. They're going to sh- bomb away from three and move the ball. And that turns out to be the NBA that, as we know it. And yet, the yes. Philadelphia 76ers are the antithesis <laughs> of that right now. No, it's, it's just it's a bunch in, of giants um, plotting infu- basketball. infuriating. It is infuriating. So part of my polygamy as a fan, um, and it's so weird being a sports gas back who's also a journalist, but I feel like that's what we're all going to be going forward. Like, there is very little, I think, purity when it comes to like, hey, don't have opinions about the stuff you're covering i think analysis is sort of built into the job now but i want the sixers to live up to the promise of the process and what elton brand has been doing like it is john elway to me it's like hey i'm gonna draft or i'm gonna select and sign a bunch of guys who remind me of me they're gonna be big and they're gonna sort of plot around and they're gonna be individually quite useful but in terms of the modern sport getting away from the Sixers, yeah, they're zagging in, I think, yes. a dangerous I was just going to say that. It's like in a, in a hinky way, and I don't know if this is a distorted hinky way, they're trying to zag when everyone's in. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is like, hey, we got to beat the Bucks, and how do we stop Giannis? Well, we'll throw, I don't know, 28 feet combined of, of center at him. So maybe, by the way, maybe that will work when we ever get the NBA back. Maybe that will be the redemption of Elton Brand in the eyes of all of us nerdy Sixers um, apologists. But to me, like the promise of that team, um, what I continue to be haunted by as, as again, a, a nerdy sports fan here is what would Sam have done? (laughs) Like, what was the trade he was going to make? Because the way he got that job, Tom, was here's the PowerPoint presentation of how we traded for James Harden when I was assistant GM with the Rockets. Mm. We had all these assets. There was a superstar who became available suddenly and unexpectedly. We were there better than anyone. And so we got him. This Sixers team has not, or I guess by this point, they did not do that. They use their assets in different ways. They did and trade for Tobias. They did trade for Throw Tobias. a bunch but, of assets for Tobias, but he isn't James Harden. And, and that's, that. yes, and that's part of the infuriating part. It's like you use those assets on Tobias Harris. Like, not that Anthony Davis would have been the Sixers target here, but like somebody of that caliber, I think, was, was in the works, 
So anyway, for me, like I miss, and you can criticize me for having these feelings. I miss Markel Fultz. I miss Robert Covington. I miss Nerlens Noel. I miss all of these rangy dudes that were very flawed in many ways, but resembled a certain future. And I just wanted to see that promise paid off. And, and so whenever people ask me about the process, I'm like, well, the process died as soon as Sam left. Um, what came next was something different. And, and so, yeah, there is always a what if kind of feeling with it. Yeah, I was talking to a, a coach the other day who was lamenting the fact that the NBA is gonna come back without fans and being like, that's gonna change everything. And, you know, home court advantage is going to go away. And I was like, Mm -hmm. holy, the Sixers are screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. So there are two two angles on this question, and I think it's fascinating. (laughs) Yes, yes. So so the one is the one that you mentioned. The home court advantage of the Sixers was the entire reason they have been even vaguely respectable this season. It's remarkable, and there is like a psychological study that I want done based on the home road splits of this team. The other angle is what happens to players when there aren't fans on the court? Like we've seen, and you, you, you've Would you they all t- turn into Dennis, Dennis Rodman, you're saying? No, I'm saying like we've seen Tom, like Dwight Howard in practice drain free throws. Oh, you've yes. seen oh. him in a certain comfort zone be a totally different player than he is under the bright lights and the screaming fans. This is prime for Freakonomics NBA. Absolutely. So like what happens to players who allegedly choke under pressure when fans are not there? Now, maybe it'll sink in that they're being broadcast to the world and maybe that's enough. But I have a suspicion that so much of what fans bring is this constant thrumming reminder that you are being judged. And I have to imagine that we'll get some interesting results and whether that result involves Ben Simmons hitting more threes. I don't know, but I certainly am curious about the psychological effects of having no fans around. It's fascinating. Uh, I just dug it up because it's been so long. It's been years since the NBA was playing. So I forgot about this. (laughs) The home road splits. You ready for this? For the 76ers at home, they are 29 and two. On the road, they're ten and twenty-four. Yeah, yeah. And they were they were beating like great teams at home. It wasn't like they were they were taking advantage of a lopsided schedule. It, there's something deeper, something for you in specific, Tom, to figure out. I trust you more than anyone else in Thank our you. industry to figure this out. Like, I don't know what it is, but something is happening, and I don't know if it's good. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's like Dwight Howard's going to be a 90% free throw shooter. And he, he, there, there are, there are, there's photographic evidence in the very Orlando magic, uh, screw up where an agent or someone took a picture of their, their player who just signed with the Orlando magic. And in the background at the front office was, it's, it's what happened to, uh, Gruden at, during the draft. Mm. Um, where there was like right, right, right. a board of the Orlando magic. And one of the things was trade, Aaron Gordon for, and I forget who the player was, but there was like a, a, tr- a big board of the Orlando Magic front office in the background. There was a, a picture of the Lakers locker room once that showed the in-practice free throw percentages of Ooh. every player. And Dwight Howard was like better than Kobe. 
I'm probably Amazing. exaggerating that, but Dwight Howard in practice was like a, an 84% free throw shooter or something like that. And then in games, it was like 54. Um, <laughs> so we're going to find out um, if that is, this is the control. This is the control. Group. Yes. We're going to get yes. the control group. This, we are getting a control group that would never be available to us if not for the dissolution of society at large. So if there are upsides in this, it is the fact that my plants are on television and that we're going to run a real-time psychological study of the effect of crowds on NBA player performance. And just remember that when the NBA comes back, you are going to learn that all of your kids' toys and technologies are deadly. That's right. That's Whenever right. the NBA comes back, just <laughs> Um, Pablo, uh, please tell the folks at home where they can find your pretty mustachioed face. Um, yes, I am number one on twitter.com. My username is my name. You'll find where I am from there, but I'm on highly questionable around the horn. We're going to be back on ESPN linear TV in like these 20 minute chunks starting at 4:20 PM which is just kind of cosmically <laughs> wonderful. Um, that's when Highly Questionable will be on. Around the Horn will be at 4.40 uh, in this weird in-between time. Uh, but yeah, otherwise I'll be posting stuff to the internet where I assume you find people will be. So I will see yes. you there. Thank you so much. And uh, best of luck with, with the sleeping uh, patterns of your, of your daughter. And congratulations yeah. on the tummy time flipping over onto its onto, onto her. Thank you for recognizing that, Tom. I yeah. threw it out there. Like, this is how I'm bragging now. I throw out accomplishments of my daughter, and I hope that parents recognize. Um, and yes, she is ahead of the curve. Uh, but <laughs> but, but know, in all seriousness. <laughs> just know that my daughter like crawled like three months earlier than every other kid in our, in our group of friends, and then walked like eight months later. And the doctor's <laughs> like, well, that's because she's such a good crawler. She didn't need to walk. And I'm like, damn it. Yeah, yeah. You have to remember that. Just keep in mind, whenever they're ahead of the game, that might actually make them because they're so proficient in that one thing, it might mean that they don't want to take that next step, pun intended. Mm, so just mm. remember that. Keep your, uh, keep your expectations. You're so wise. Yes. Tom, you're so wise. Um, but in all seriousness, congratulations on your expanding and expanded family. Um, and, and yeah, man, I look forward to actually like hanging out when we can see each other in person like people again. And that'll do it for this week's episode of the Habershow Podcast. Want to give a special shout out to Pablo for joining me in his sleep deprived state as a new father. Uh, I'm glad to hear things are going well. And if you can't get enough of this documentary and all of the nostalgia of the 90s Bulls, next week you're going to have an awesome panel full of former players of those Bulls teams from NBC Sports Chicago going down memory lane. We're going to have a special panel uh, early next week reviewing episodes seven and eight on the Haver Show. So stay tuned for that. And go listen to my previous interview with J.A. Adande as we go down memory lane with him about Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan. So subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And until next time on The Haber Show.